This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we're going to begin to explore the life and writing of one of America's most beloved 20th century writers, Elizabeth Bishop. During her lifetime, uh, even though her outpouring of work was small, it was widely admired and lauded. She was granted two Guggenheim Fellowships, was a consultant in poetry at the Library of Congress, received the American Academy of Letters Award, the Pulitzer for her publication North and South, the National Book Award, as well as the Order of Rio Bronco by the Brazilian government. Yet for a long time, um, even though widely respected in critical circles, her work wasn't widely read or even uh, widely anthologized. Today, however, years after her death, she is recognized as one of America's greatest poets. Christy, what about Elizabeth Bishop is so great, and why did it take so long for her work to be so widely disseminated? Or or maybe more basically, why do you enjoy her work personally? Well, there are a lot of ways to answer those questions. First, for those who may not be familiar with her, let's just drop her into history. Okay. Uh, She was born in 1911, and she died in 1979. So, to put in perspective, she lived through both World Wars and the Great Depression, all the way through to the Vietnam War. And uh, if you're looking at it from a strictly American perspective, which I would say is fair since she's an American. For sure. Although, none of those events that you just listed show up in her writing, now that I think about it. Bishop wrote about nature. She wrote about the sea. And I know, you know, the way I just said that makes her sound really basic and boring. And she isn't that at all. I wouldn't like her if she was, and I hope I can show that. But let's just think of that first question that you asked about why did she get all those accolades? Well, the critics like her, for one thing, because she's technically an excellent craftsman. Um, There's just no way to deny that. In her writing, every word is calculated. One poem, The Moose, took her 20 years before she was 
you know, ready to publish it. So she's conscious of every individual word, or, or should I say not just the words, how they come together. She's conscious of the sounds, the rhymes, the patterns, every detail to the order of the letters is thoughtful. In the poem we're reading today, she split the word an, as in an, the article, into two lines, putting the A on one line and the N on a different line because she's creating a specific effect, which we'll talk about later. It's that meticulousness that's technically impressive, but it's also that sort of thing that keeps her body of work, you know, fairly small. She only published 101 poems. How can you generate that kind of quantity if you're so obsessive about every technical detail? I mean, how many times can you take 20 years to write a poem? <laughs> you know, I've read all of her poems, and I can't say that about almost any other poet that I know. Uh, usually I just hit the big ones and move on. So there's the obvious technique that, uh, that makes her stand out, but that makes you admire a person. It doesn't really make you like a person. Liking something is different. What I find enjoyable about Bishop is that Bishop is poetic in the old sense of the word and that she sees the world differently. She portrays the world as honestly as she understands it to be, not how she wishes it were. And often the way that she sees things is different than the way I naturally would see things. I find her perspective fascinating. She was such an observer. She would watch nature and people and how things fit together. And her mind would work and create these incredible analogies. She saw the world geographically. She, uh, her first poem was called The Map. And she wrote it while sitting on the floor in her apartment in New York, staring and thinking about this map on the wall. And, and she wonders in the poem, what's so fascinating with maps? What do they mean to us? Why do they mean so much to us? And she hypothesizes about that. So it's just very interesting. Lots of her poetry is like that. She watches a sandpiper in the sand, and she can see herself in the way this little bird interacts with the world. She describes in one poem the moment that, as a little girl, where she realized she was a separate person from her caretaker, her aunt, and she was sitting there reading this National Geographic ma magazine, sees these women on the page, and has these kinds of epiphanies. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, uh, it's her insights that you like? Yeah, I think so. And her life experiences made her really unique. Uh, they were defined by a lot of travel, which, of course, uh, I appreciate. I especially love that she traveled extensively across the country of Brazil. But her life was also marked by a lot of tragedy. And even though she did experience tragedy, she never became a tragic person. You know, it's, it's not sad. Uh, she was kind of detached, honestly, and, and she writes in this detached way. Uh, she saw tragedy, but she also saw beauty. She saw life in terms of tensions, uh, the tearful side versus the comic side. She saw them as two coins of the same thing, fragile versus tough side of things, things that are tender but also brutal. Those three aspects, uh, she would try to portray them artistically into words. And we're going to see all those tensions that I just listed in the poem that we're reading today. So when I first started prepping for the podcast, I really had this idea that we were going to talk about three of my favorite poems. But then after I got into it, I realized, you no, know, that's uh, <laughs> way more than you can do in a single episode. 
So we're just going to, I just picked one, and I picked one about Brazil. One day maybe we could circle back and, and look at some of the different ones. Uh, we're not going to do justice to her work in one episode for sure, especially if you're not familiar with her or uh, necessarily a poetry buff in general. But I hope, uh, I love her, and I hope that over the course of the next few minutes, you'll let me uh, show you how you can love her too. Okay, well, uh, let's get into a little bit of her bio. Uh, like we said, she was born on February 8th, 1911 in Worcester, Massachusetts, but she calls uh, Great Village, Nova Scotia, Canada, her home. She lived there until the death of her mother, uh, but her father died when she was eight months old from Bright's disease. Yeah, I read that. Well, what is Bright's disease? I'd never heard of it. Yeah, it's it's a term that we really don't use anymore. It's a historical term that references what today is a collection of different kidney diseases. Uh, today, we would call it nephritis, and in this case, it was fatal, and this event sent the Bishop family into turmoil, and Elizabeth's life was altered and, and really sent adrift, and honestly, she would really settle and establish roots anywhere, not really even in her entire life. You know, it's crazy when you think that you're eight months old and your life completely starts to spin out of control. True. Uh, and beyond just the loss of a father, his death led her mother into a spiral of cycles of mental illness. And uh, she was committed to a mental institution when Elizabeth was only five. And Elizabeth never saw her mother again because at that time it was thought to be too traumatic for an institutionalized woman to see her child. And, uh, you know, by the time Elizabeth was really old enough to make the decision to visit her mother as an adult, her mother had died. Yeah, Bishop uh, talks about this. She expresses vivid memories of her mom screaming, and she draws from that entire experience in one of the few short stories that she wrote uh, called In the Village. So basically, as an orphaned child, uh, Elizabeth bounced around from home to home, eventually preferring to stay at boarding school. And the original problem was that her father's family was wealthy and prominent, and they didn't want her raised in that little Canadian village uh, where her mom's parents lived in, so they moved her back to Boston. Uh, and to put it in uh, Bishop's exact words, I was brought back, unconsulted, and against my wishes to the house my father had been born in. Um, you know, however, they were not a loving family, and she developed all kinds of illnesses in their home. And she eventually settled in to live with her mother's older sister, Aunt Maud, who also lived in the U.S. and the paternal grandparents paid for Elizabeth to attend expensive private schools and expensive summer camps, bringing up her upbringing to their standards. And <laughs> she was a good student and ultimately was accepted into and attended the prestigious Vassar College. You know, you describe, you know, what happened to her in those terms. It makes it sound like, OK, that's not terrible. It sounds pretty good. But when you listen to Bishop talk about her growing up years, she describes them as being very lonely. In fact, she famously told one of her closest friends, that celebrated confessional poet Robert Lowell, she said this, when you write my epitaph, you must say I was the loneliest person who ever lived. <laughs> wow. You know, and, and in a real sense, she was alone, um, even though she was around people all the time. For one thing, she was the consummate outsider, but another very important and defining reason was a dark secret that she was living in. George Shepherdson, um, her uncle, specifically Maud's husband, 
verbally, physically, and sexually assaulted and abused her from the age of 8 to 19 in those formative years uh, while she lived with him. And none of this was known at the time. And the details and terror uh, really wasn't detailed till later on in a 22-page single-spaced letter that she wrote to her therapist years later and disclosed only after her death by researchers. And one example being the time he literally dangled her over a second-story balcony by her hair. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know... The fact that we even know that seems a little invasive since she wrote it to a therapist. And we all know, well, you know if you know her writing, she was a very shy and private person all of her life. True. And I'm sure there's a lot about her life that she would not have wanted to be disclosed to the level that it is today. And uh, her sexual orientation being the most obvious. And um, her most important relationships were romantic relationships with women. And although she didn't really keep this a secret and, and all of her friends and acquaintances understood her sexuality, it really still wasn't something she paraded and it certainly wasn't talked about. Well, no, I mean, things like that were definitely not talked about in the day that she lived. And there's a lot to say about her romantic uh, relationships. Actually, there's a lot to say about her life story in general, which we won't have time to get into. She wrote extensively about Nova Scotia. She lived in D.C. She lived in Key West. But we're going to focus in on her time and her relationship with Brazil, the Brazilian people and, and the culture that she fell in love with, a place where she found happiness. Now, Christy, why would we concentrate on Brazil? <laughs> it's where Bishop found happiness. <laughs> oh, and there's, but you have no connection there, right? Uh, no. No biases. There you go. Well, uh, she visited there in 1951 when she was 40 years old with really no plans to stay. Um, she had an old school friend from Vassar named Mary Morse who lived there with a woman she'd actually met a few years before. Laura de Macedo Soares. Oh, you said that so well. <laughs> but the purpose of her trip was, was just a vacation. And while there, she ate a cashew fruit which is the orange fruit connected to what we think of as a cashew, which is just the nut part. And uh, Bishop had a horrible allergic reaction to it, and the reaction put her in the hospital. Loda and she got close while Elizabeth recovered, and Loda invited her to stay, and she did. And while living with Loda, Elizabeth would write some of her most celebrated poetry, among which would be the work for which she received her Pulitzer. You know, Laura de Macedo Soares was a member of the ruling oligarchy of Brazil. Her family was wealthy. They were well-connected. They were important. She also was a self-taught architect that that was very notable. Her most famous work, uh, if you've been to Rio, you've seen it. It's the prestigious Flamengo Park. It's a large and an important landmark, uh, really kind of the equivalent of Central Park in New York City. It's right there on the Guanabara Bay, which is that famous water that you see in pictures of Rio. Well, many biographers call a lot of the love of Elizabeth's life, not necessarily because she was the only important romantic relationship in Elizabeth's life, because she wasn't, but really because of the strong influence that she had exerted on her in so many ways. For sure. You know, with Lada, 
Elizabeth found a home in Brazil and, and she made connections in ways that she never had before. I mean, she really, I mean, I was kidding and just, you know, because I love Brazil, obviously, but she was happy there. She lived there permanently for 15 years. But even after she left uh, her permanent resident there, she would go back and forth to her new home. She maintained a house in Oru Preto, which is in another state uh, near Bella, where I grew up. She she had a home there until 1974, which is really just five years before she died. Bishop's most famous poem may be the Villanelle One Art, uh, which is a poem really about losing things. But in that poem, two of the three homes that she references are in Brazil, the one in Rio and the one in Ouro Preto. Of course, in that poem, she also references losing two cities, two rivers, a continent. All of those are Brazil. I know I'm biased, so, you know, take it for what it's worth. But Brazil is one of the friendliest and most welcoming places on planet Earth. And Brazil loved Elizabeth (laughs) Bishop right back. (laughs) True. And, of course, uh, lots of people feel that way about Brazil. But in Bishop's case, she saw a Brazil that only the most privileged uh, ever get to see. Lotta's family was a political family, and Bishop had a front-row seat to all the cultural, political, and social movers and shakers of Brazil in the 1950s and 1960s. And this time period was an important one historically for Brazil for a lot of reasons, not least of which was building a capital city, the capital city of Brasilia, in the middle of the country, a place that had almost no development at the time. And moving the seat of government from Rio to Brasilia, that was a huge and expensive ordeal. True, and, and Lotta owned an apartment on that famous Copacabana Beach, and she and Elizabeth lived there. Well, and, and let me add that at that time, this was one of the most expensive tracts of real estate in the world. And besides the apartment there on Copacabana, Lotta and Bishop lived most of the time on a family farm that they called Samambaya. Now, that's the Portuguese word for fern, because this estate, although it's privately owned, I'd love to visit it, it's an hour out of town, kind of into the jungle near another town called Petropolis. Well, their home out from Rio was an amazing estate. I'm not sure I want to try pronouncing that, but uh, it is an architectural marvel of the period. You know, it's a modern house set in the wild rainforest, and they had servants and gardeners and cooks, and they received dignitaries and hosted celebrities from all over the world, and Lotta built Bishop a studio with a glass window overlooking, uh, you know, that beautiful, lush, tropical jungle landscape where she could go and write. You know, it just sounds glamorous, and Although Elizabeth never became a fluent Portuguese speaker, she did translate and co-edit, you know, Brazilian poetry into English. And she studied. She studied the culture, the geography, the history extensively. She traveled everywhere, including down the Amazon River with Aldous Huxley because they went to see the Indian tribes. Now, how many people can say, I traveled down the Amazon with Aldous Huxley? I know. How cool would that be? That's a big name drop. (laughs) But, you know, besides just understanding the culture, she was an exporter of Brazilian culture all over the world. And not just because she wrote poetry about Brazil. She wrote a book on Brazil for Life World Library series, and it was marketed and sent to homes all over America. It was one of those coffee table books that has pictures in it. So a lot of people, even though they may not have known Bishop for her poetry, she gave them direct exposure to the culture and history and, and, and things about Brazil that they had sitting on their coffee table that they may not even have associated with her. 
the poem I want to feature today is about Brazil. Uh, but she didn't actually finish writing it until 1979, which was years after she'd moved back to the U.S. It's titled Pink Dog. Uh, it's actually the last poem Bishop ever completed before she died of a brain aneurysm that same year in 1979. This is a fun poem. I love it for many reasons, but I chose it today because it's a great example of what Elizabeth Bishop is really good at. What Bishop does, and I hope we can see it through the poem, is she observes the world. So in this case, she is observing a dog that she sees walking up a major Brazilian thoroughfare that's taking people, the thoroughfare takes people to this world-famous Copacabana Beach. So in one sense, you can read the poem straightforward. It's a poem about a dog, a pink dog, and that's exactly right. That's what it is. She observed a dog interact in the world. But what we see her doing is she adds these layers of analogies to the dog. We understand pretty quickly that this poem wants to talk about a social problem, a specific social problem in Brazil at the time. The dog is representing the homeless population, and it's exposing a terrible, inconvenient political atrocity that was happening and that had been exposed during the time Bishop was living in Rio. So there's that layer of understanding. There's the actual historical side to it. But then there's a personal side, you know, a more universal side. Maybe she saw herself in that pink dog. Maybe we can see ourselves in it. The dog is a metaphor at an individual level as well as a societal one. So it's really something you can think about, you know, the same poem a long time I know that sounds nerdy, but if you'll track with me, I think you can see that it's true and actually very interesting. So this is how we should do this. Let's read through it just without stopping, and then we'll talk about it uh, kind of stanza by stanza. Okay. Pink Dog. The sun is blazing and the sky is blue. Umbrellas clothe the beach in every hue. Naked you trot across the avenue. Oh, never have I seen a dog so bare, naked and pink, without a single hair. Startled, a passerby draw back and stare. Of course, they're mortally afraid of rabies. You are not mad. You have a case of scabies. But look intelligent. Where are your babies? A nursing mother by those hanging teats. In what slum have you hidden them, poor bitch, while you go begging, living by your wits? Didn't you know it's been in all the papers? To solve this problem, how they deal with beggars, they take and throw them in the tidal rivers. Yes, idiots, paralytics, parasites, go bobbing in the ebbing sewage nights, out in the suburbs where there are no lights. If they do this to anyone who begs, drugged, drunk, or sober, with or without legs, what would they do to sick four-legged dogs? In the cafes and on the sidewalk corners, the joke is going around that all the beggars who can afford them now wear life preservers. In your condition, you would not be able even to float, much less to dog paddle. Now look, the practical, the sensible. Solution is to wear a fantasia. Tonight you simply can't afford to be an eyesore, but no one will ever see a dog in mascara this time of year. Ash Wednesday will come, but carnival is here. What sambas can you dance? What will you wear? They say that carnival is degenerating. Radios, Americans, or something have ruined it completely. They're just talking. Carnival is always wonderful. A depilated dog would not look well. 
Dress up, dress up, and dance at carnival. Good. All right. The way you should read every poem is just read it and then go back through and read it again, kind of soaking in all the little details. So let's set the scene. Stanza one. The sun is blazing and the sky is blue. Umbrellas clothe the beach in every hue. Naked, you trot across the avenue. So if you've seen a picture of Copacabana Beach in Rio, this is the scene that you'll see. Umbrellas line the beaches. The beach in Rio in the summer, which, by the way, is December through February, it's harsh. It's very hot. The skies are clear of clouds much of the time, even though that is rainy season. You see the view from Sugarloaf, the mountain, and then Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, overlooking from behind. I mean, Copacabana, Copacabana Beach is spectacular. But notice the language here, and this is what I mean by how careful Bishop chooses her words. The umbrellas clothe the beach. The reference to clothes, this is important because we need to contrast it with this poor dog. The dog is naked. And if you're looking at this poem on the page, you'll see that the word naked is capitalized, but it's also set off by a comma on one side and a period on the other. So it's isolated in the poem. The dog is isolated in its nakedness. Um, you know, of course, I hate to bring this up, um, but aren't Brazilian beaches known for lack of clothing? <laughs> well, I'm sure you hate to bring that up. Uh, but yes, no, mais ou menos, as we say in Portuguese. <laughs> There's irony in that, too. Bishop knows that's the reputation, but, you know, no one is actually naked. In Rio, we don't have topless beaches. I mean, we've all seen Brazilian bikinis, so... You know, maybe they're nearly naked from an American perspective, but they are clothed, even if it is a itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, yellow polka dot bikini, as the song says. But notice the phrase, every hue. That's another thing. And a North American might notice if you were go to a Brazilian beach. The skin tones, they're every hue. Brazil is a land of great diversity of hues, you know, very much like the Creole people of New Orleans. And we talked about those before. The shades of skin tones are as diverse as any array of beach umbrellas, and they're all beautiful, you know, light brown to olive to mocha. Uh, You may have seen a movie uh, with all these people out on the beach, maybe even some dogs strolling the famous Avenida Atlantica, which is the name of that strip along Copacabana, which goes all the way down to Ipanema down the road. Well, let's talk about Copacabana Beach. Um, For those who may not know, it's uh, one of the most famous beaches in the entire world. And Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dance at the Copacabana Palace Hotel, and Princess Diana stayed there. And on February 18, 2006, the Rolling Stones performed one of the largest free concerts in rock and roll history there with an audience of 1.5 million people. (laughs) 1.5 1.5 million of your best friends. I mean, if you can imagine such a massive crowd, it's legendary, uh, and yet it's a public beach. Uh, Brazil, although uh, uh, being a very hierarchical country, as we see even in the life of Elizabeth Bishop, has a beach culture that's very democratic. Anyone can go to the world-famous Brazilian beaches, and the beach is a great equalizer in that way. Um, you know, and this is different from maybe uh, Martha's Vineyard or Malibu in the U.S., which are, you know, very elite places with um, limited access to average people. And I also want to point out that if I were reading this poem in 1969, when it came out, I would likely immediately think of that hit song, Girl from Impanima. 
Say that for me because I know I'm... Ipanema. Ipanema. Well, you know, we I Americanize it, though. Uh, that's the beach next over from Copacabana, and the visual imagery is the same. And that song, um, you know, although a Brazilian bossa nova song originally recorded in Portuguese... It also has an English version, and it won a Grammy in 1965. And uh, also, by the way, it's the second most recorded pop song in the music industry. Well, you know, that song uh, would have been on the radio constantly at the time that Bishop was writing Pink Dog. And the first part of the song can easily be interpreted, and it has by many critics, as a parody of that exact song, especially if you think about the words of the poem in connection with the Brazilian or the Portuguese lyrics. The Portuguese versions say, Olha que coisa mais linda, mais cheia de graça, e ela menina que vem e que passa num doce balança caminha do mar. So is the Brazilian version different? Yeah, it is kind of. It slightly changes the focus. And the Brazilian vers- version, you know, heightens lo- the looking at this girl. I mean, let me translate it. Look at the most beautiful thing, so full of grace. It's a girl who comes and who passes by with the sweet swing of her hip on her way to the sea. It goes on to talk about her corpo durado or her, her golden body. It references the sun. And then it has this line. O seu balançado é mais que uma poema. É uma coisa mais linda que eu já vi passar. In other words, she the way she shakes her body, it's more than a poem. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen crossing. And so that's our starting point. That's the context of Bishop's little dog. But let's look at our dog in the next stanza, by the way. This poem has 15 stanzas, and all the stanzas have exactly three lines, and they kind of mimic uh, the rhythm, the musicality that we may have heard when you're speaking in Portuguese or you're singing Bossa Nova or even that the, the phrases that we just read from the, the Ipanema song. Uh, it sounds kind of like you know a, a Brazilian melody. Oh, never have I seen a dog so bare, naked and pink, without a single hair, Startled, the passers-by draw back and stare. Well, if we have the song in the back of our minds, I mean, it's definitely a parody. I can hear myself putting a melody on top of that. (laughs) You know, these onlookers are staring too, but, you know, they're not staring because the dog is the most beautiful thing, full of grace, uh, you know, superseding the grace of poetry itself. They're staring because it's ghastly. Uh, It's not wearing a skimpy bikini. It's bare and naked and just bald. Right, uh, and we don't want this nakedness. And, and the pink isn't the golden pink of the sun. It's a sickly pink. I do want to add Bishop scholars who really have looked at all the multiple drafts of with Bishop's annotations in the margins tell us that she makes a note that there was an actual pink dog that, that inspired this poem, but she didn't see it on Avenida Atlantica, which is the beach road that you know goes down the, the coastline, she saw it on Avenida Princesa Isabella, which is the avenue that, that takes you to the beach from the interior of the town. It's the access road that's perpendicular that runs into Avenida Atlantica. It's a commercial street, uh, not a touristy one. So on the commercial street, the passers-by definitely would not be you know semi-naked like a beach person might be, and the dog would look even more out of place. Let's read the next two stanzas when they talk about the dog. Of course, they're mortally afraid of rabies. You are not mad. You have a case of scabies. But look intelligent. Where are your babies? A nursing mother by those hanging teats. 
In what slum have you hidden them, poor bitch, while you go begging, living by your wits? Again, the parody uh, continues, and these stanzas are interesting. First of all, this is what we call an apostrophe. Elizabeth is talking directly to the dog, even though obviously the dog can't talk back. From the third line onward, she switches to the second person. But then she goes on to say, You are not mad. You have a case of scabies. Where are your babies? This is a female dog. She's ugly. She's not crazy. We can tell she's a mother by her hanging teats, but there aren't any babies around. This is when we're starting to see her drifting into the social commentary. What slum did you come out of? What favela? That's what they call those things in Brazil. uh, The ones that you see in the pictures, you know, going up the mountainside. Here's this mother out scavenging, looking sickly, but she's having to leave her babies unattended. And, of course, you know, the favelas are impossible not to notice uh, when you drive through Rio or really any major city in Brazil. And the contrast between the rich and the poor is enormous. I mean, you've got the beautiful landscapes uh, that are juxtaposed with these favelas or slums that line the mountains. And the richness of Copacabana side by side in obvious contrast to the realities of urban poverty, that, that really caught her eye. Yes, and Bishop uses this expletive here. And the expletive stands out as strange and harsh because obviously she has sympathy for this dog. She's not shaming the dog, but she uses the expletive to show that this dog is despised by her society. She's a beggar. People are afraid of her. She's marginalized because of her looks. She looks crazy. Her hips are not swaying like the girl in the in the song. Her teats are. That's gross. You know, she's marginalized maybe by how she's making a living, maybe her social standing. I mean, this dog is everything that the girl from Ipanema is not. Didn't you know, listen to this, it's been in all the papers to solve this problem, how they deal with beggars. They take and throw them in the tidal rivers. Gary, this you know, his little stanza is cryptic if you don't understand the historical or political context. What is she talking about, tidal rivers and throwing them in the papers? What was going on in the papers that she's referencing? Oh, my. That is an interesting story. And, you know, of course, every country has dark chapters. But uh, during the 60s, there was a push in Brazil to get the squatters who were living in favelas, uh, which were on valuable real estate to be displaced and put to live outside of town, really out of sight and certainly away from the affluent and middle-class neighborhoods. And this was not just in Rio, but all over the country. However, uh, Governor Lacerda, the governor of Rio, was implicated in a scandal with his effort to clean up, quotation marks, if you will, uh, if you want to use that word, these urban areas. And the authorities were known to collect these homeless people Uh, And often they were the drug addicted or the mentally ill or crippled or definitely beggars, but they shoot them and throw them in the Rio Guarda. Here's a quote from Governor Lacerda himself. Once there appeared floating in the Guarda River the body of a man who had been tied up with bullet holes in his neck and that another had survived and gone to the police station in Santa Cruz or Campo Grande. I do not know where, and reported that the police had taken him there and thrown him into the river. And of course, you know, Bishop is referencing this uh, like she knows 
like she thinks we know what she's talking about. Uh, now that you know that that was actually happening, you know, it makes the stanzas more understandable. Yes, idiots, paralytics, parasites go bobbing in the ebbing sewage. Nights out in the suburbs where there are no lights, because suburbs where they were being thrown and forced to live out of town. If they do this to anyone who begs, drugged, drunk, or sober, with or without legs, what would they do to sick four-legged dogs? You know, apparently there was an agency called the Beggar Recovery Service, and, uh, you know, everything terrible has to have a nice title. Uh, But recovery in this context meant uh, drowning. They were recovering the city and handling the problem of beggars by literally getting rid of them in a river. And uh, this, once it got out, really provoked an international scandal. Uh, And uh, Bishop draws attention to it very subtly with the pink dog. Who knew? (laughs) Well, she makes a risky but very Brazilian-like joke. Brazilians, by the way, are very irreverent when it comes to their humor. They make fun of everything and nothing is ever sacred. Brazilian humor is not politically correct. They mock themselves. They mock everything. Um, You know, this comes from a long history of being a suffering people, really, and not having a democratic voice. So what could you do if not laugh? And rulers did what they wanted, and and you just had to make the best of the situation. So uh, the more terrible something was, you know, the more likely it was to be mocked. Today we can uh, see that they have a democracy, but this political humor still persists. And here we see Bishop injecting the Brazilian response to a crisis of that horrific magnitude by using a little bit of Brazilian humor. In the cafes and on the sidewalk corners, the joke is going around that all the beggars who can afford them now wear life preservers. (laughs) That is awful. (laughs) I know, right? But I bet you anything that she didn't make that up. I bet you that really was an actual joke that went around, although I I have no way to corroborate that. But the situation was so terrible. There's nothing to be done. So the best we can do is make a little funny joke about it that might bring attention to this otherwise terrifying situation. And Bishop uses this very Brazilian of strategies to bring our attention back to the pink dog. It's too bad off to survive being thrown into the river. In your condition, you would not be able even to float, much less to dog paddle. Now look, the practical, the sensible. You know, and after all those three lines, there's a break, and there's a break to a new stanza. But the break gives us time to think. What would be the solution for this little dog, this helpless, ugly, girl, mother, beggar dog? What would be sensible and practical? And, of course, the solution will be ironic because the solution that she is going to propose in the poem is not sensible or practical in any traditional sense. And yet that's the irony of it. Let's read it. Solution is to wear a fantasia. Tonight you simply can't afford to be an eyesore, but no one will ever see a dog and mascara this time of year. Ash Wednesday will come, but carnival is here. What psalmist can you dance? What will you wear? So many interesting things to say here. First of all, uh, the word solution is not capitalized, even though it's starting a stanza. It's not a practical solution that she's going to propose because it's not a permanent solution. Uh, If the inevitable cannot be avoided forever, 
Perhaps the solution is to wear, and the word is pronounced fantasia in Portuguese. That's their Portuguese word for costume, except in the way you say it, said it when you read it, the Americanized way, you know, highlights what she's wanting to notice about it. A fantasia is a fantasy. The solution is to dress in a costume, to live a short fantasy, to pretend for a moment that this is not your fate. The delusion of carnival won't last but until Wednesday, but at least, you know, for one night or a couple nights, you can dress up in your fantasia, you can dress up in your fantasy, and you can make believe that you're not the horrible eyesore that you are every other day of the year. And here, you know, this is where I said she split up the, the word an, A-N, is split on two lines. Why? Because all these th lines are ending in an A. You know, if you split the word, uh, it, 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 the musicality works. And, and there's a little social comedy in here injecting. You know, just dress up the problem. Hide the eyesore. Hide it with a rhyme. Even one that's contrived. You know, there's a reference to religion here with Ash Wednesday. But the spelling of the word carnival uh, is spelled the American way. That's another detail. Bishop, it would have been natural to use the Portuguese word for carnival. She used the Portuguese word for fantasia. She used the Portuguese word for mascara. Uh, but she's using, uh, they spell it different with an A, the holiday. But she uses the carnival spelling, the English way, because our word kind of connotes the chaotic, you know, traveling circuit type things that go around our country. Uh, but it's a pun there. All three of these words actually are puns. And she brings up the associations that we, things that we associate with actual carnivals. And a lot of those aren't really positive. It highlights the chaotic nature of this, of this, uh, of the party here, of this plan. So there's two rhetorical questions. What sambas will you sing? What will you wear? This, again, is directly addressing the history and culture of Carnival, the holiday in Brazil. Gary, tell us why she would reference Samba. I mean, this adds a little historical perspective. Well, I'm not like you. I'm definitely not an expert on Brazilian history, but uh, Samba is um, Afro-Brazilian by heritage. It's associated historically with the slums of Rio and originally associated with the abolition of slavery. Even though Samba of today is associated with Brazilian culture and heritage as a whole, the Samba schools are still strongly associated with working class communities. And uh, in Rio, and you can never tour these today in Rio, and that is historically true, it is the working class neighborhoods that would compete uh, in the parades at Carnival. Each Samba school creates original songs, they practice original choreography, they have elaborate costumes, and they build uh, you know, these magnificent floats. So they're majestic, they're elaborate, and you can see them all on TV all over the world during the three days of Carnival. Uh, during Bishop's Day, the parades and the competition were in the streets. You know, today it's more organized. There's an official stand called the Sombodrome with seating and waiting areas. Of course, and Bishop, uh, likely along with everyone else, saw the commercialization of the street party that had been Carnival. And she speaks to this in the last two stanzas. They say that Carnival's degenerating radios, Americans, or something, have ruined it completely. They're just talking. Carnival is always wonderful. A depilated dog would not look well. Dress up. Dress up and dance at Carnival. <laughs> 
Well, even her day, uh, the carnival was really becoming commercialized today. It's even more so. You know, some of the events costing thousands of dollars to attend. Um, but beyond just being more expensive, it became more tightly organized and really controlled by elite people. Um, you know, let me read a quote. Much of the fun at Carnival has also been spoiled by the government's forbidding costumes or floats that make sport of politicians, the church, or the military. (laughs) Some of the cleverest displays of wit were formerly inspired by these old, reliable objects of satire, but radio and loudspeakers have done the most damage. The virtue of Carnival has always been its spontaneity and the fact that all the songs, music, and dances came directly from the people themselves. When commercial songwriters started composing songs for it, and when these songs were broadcast long before Carnival, all charm is lost, Elizabeth Bishop said. (laughs) And, of course, we've seen that over and over again in all kinds of areas, especially in America. We take something that's fun and free and of the people, and, um, you know, there's going to be a group of people that's going to monetize them and control it, and uh, we make it grander in some ways, more professional, you know. But by doing that, we also take away everything we originally liked about it, and we are erasing all the original magic. And a bishop doesn't think anyone can do that. And so, again, you see this sleight of hand. Bishop, through her pen, you know, takes us through these various ways of understanding her pink dog. We start with the social, then we move on to the political, and then we saw the commercial uh, critique of this dog that began on the beach of Copacabana invoking a beautiful girl from Ipanema, quickly morphed into this social outcast slum dweller who's fighting off being thrown into a river but then one week is celebrated dancing samba in a beautiful fant- fantasia or costume <laughs> or fantasy. I mean, Gary, what are your thoughts? Oh, my gosh. There's a lot. There's so much to unpack here. Um, you know, it, it's an indictment on how we treat the downtrodden for sure. Um, of course, she situates her poem in the political situation of Rio in the 1960s. But there's definitely a universality in here. Rio is not alone in its stratification of society. I mean, that's our natural human tendency, and it's actually unavoidably human. But she comments um, how we hide this, you know, layering the beautiful on top of the ugly and pretending and ignoring instead of addressing the complex and messy. And all of us do this as societies, but, uh, you know, we do it as individuals as well. And, you know, if you want an American example, you can go study the Gilded Age. Yeah, just that word. Yeah. (laughs) Well, exactly. And of course, you know, that is what's so great about Bishop's poems. And this is one example, but she does that basically in all of them. She sees something in the world that's actually there. You know, she describes it in detail. But in the detail, we find the metaphorical and we can find the political and we can find the social. We can find the personal. You know, when I read this poem... And I won't do it. But if you were to read this poem, I would encourage you, go back and read it for a third time. And when you do, you can think about, you know, the poem as if the speaker identifies herself with the pink dog. You know, is she seeing herself as that individual? Or is she the onlooker looking from the outside? You know, Bishop was an outsider most of her life. You can read this poem really both ways. And Bishop probably read it both ways. I mean, she was an outsider as a child, but even in Brazil where she found her home, you know, she's looking at the things that were happening in Brazil 
as an outsider. So in that sense, uh, isn't that what the pink dog actually is? I mean, that pink dog is the outsider to the society, but then there's the outsider looking at the dog. Does that make your head spin or, <laughs> or what? You know, the narrator, though, uh, isn't doing anything except perhaps inviting us to empathize. What do I mean by that? You know, she's not preaching at the reader. You know, she's not judging us. I mean, how could she? The narrator isn't doing any more than we are. She's just watching. She's even funny and, and she's irreverent in the most Brazilian of ways. But at the same time, again, in a very Brazilian way, she's expressing genuine empathy. The dog is being seen. And she writes about it in this just think about it kind of attitude. And, and that's what's nice. In this case, she just says, look and pay attention and think about the pink dog. She sees the actual animal. She sees in it the beggar on the street. But beyond that, uh, perhaps she sees the pink dog is something more. Perhaps the pink dog on Copacabana is not the only one in the world who needs a fantasia or is in a fantasy. Maybe all of us are at times. Maybe even a rich, closeted social light could feel that way, too. Hmm. There you go. And this was the last poem she wrote. How interesting. Uh, the pink dog was an image that stuck with her for over 20 years. And um, I have to admit, there was way more to the poem than I thought at first <laughs> pass. Uh, you know, the devil is in the details. Well, it always is. Well, thanks for listening. Um, as always, please support us by sharing this episode with a friend via text message, email, Instagram, YouTube, or however you share things. Come visit us at our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. If you're a teacher, you can get supporting materials and ideas for using podcasts for instruction in your classroom. You can also get a t-shirt or other podcast merchandise. I recommend the mugs. And of course, please connect and join in the conversation where you think we got it right or we missed the boat. We'd love to hear from you. Peace out. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 